0: Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine.
1: Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you.
0: Welcome, everyone. Julianne and I feel very privileged to be here today with Leah Heckman, an experienced and respected clinician who has been in private practice for over 20 years. Leah specializes in fertility, pregnancy and reproductive medicine and holds fellowships and memberships with many international organizations. She sits on multiple scientific advisory boards and is a past president of the Natural Herbalists Association of Australia, otherwise known as the NHAA. She has completed extensive advanced training and is currently completing her PhD through the School of Women's and Children's Health, Faculty of Medicine, UNSW. And her research is exploring ovarian biomarkers in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome and premature ovarian failure. Leah is the Director of the Natural Health and Fertility Centre in Sydney, Australia, Over the years, she has helped thousands of couples conceive healthy, vibrant children, often in situations where they were told there was no hope left. Leia is a keynote speaker at conferences locally and internationally to both the functional and complementary medicine communities, as well as the wider fertility and gynecological areas of medicine. And as most naturopaths will know, Leia is the author of multiple seminal naturopathic textbooks and is a contributor to journals and other texts within the naturopathic and functional medicine areas, as well as general gynecology, fertility and infertility. And most importantly, she is a mother to two gorgeous boys who keep her grounded, humbled, and consciously aware. So welcome to our podcast today, Leah, and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. And Mm -hmm. in our current webinar series, Conception and Beyond, Leah, you've recorded a fantastic lecture for us on fertility and preconception, focusing on oocyte health. And we're really excited for practitioners to have a listen to this because you share so many insights around specifically herbal medicine use, as well as targeted nutrition in this patient population, which is just so phenomenal and and useful. And in your lecture, you, you mentioned that the peak fertility window, where we as practitioners can make an enormous impact, is between the ages of 25 and 35 years old. So what, at what age do you most commonly see patients for their conception issues? Is it mainly the older patients that are coming to see you or do younger women come for conception issues or is it more to ensure optimal health of their babies?
2: All of the above. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I think we're in interesting times because we've got three generations of women trying to have babies at the same time. Mm. So we've got... We've got the average age when women have kids, which is usually 25 to 35. Then we've got the younger women because they're very well-informed and they realise the implications of the environment, that it's more difficult to conceive later in life, et cetera. And they're, you know, they're, edu- they're very, very self-educated, so they understand a lot, so they're trying younger and younger. Um, and then we've also got the older women who've left having families till later in life. Um, you know, and I'm sort of classing anyone above the age of 35 here, because we know that fertility declines after the age of 35, if you look purely at science. And IVF clinics will accept women up to the age of 54 in some countries um, Mm. to use donor embryos or donor oocytes and things. So we've got women basically between the ages of 18 and 54. So it used to be just this tiny little, you know, maybe 10 years. And now we've, you know, we've got this very broad Broad Avenue, and they'll come for different reasons, you know. So they'll come at eighteen. Oh, well, Mum went through premature ovarian failure at twenty-nine, so I realised I need to have my family young. Or they'll come at forty-one and go, oh, I want my fifth kid, but you know, my last one had something on the spectrum, and I just want this one to be healthiest. Or they'll come later in life and go, life didn't bring me children when I thought, and I thought I might do it now. So I think we're blessed in the sense that there's so much activity in this area. But it makes it very broad.
0: Yeah, and I guess it means as well that there's there's different focuses depending on not only the age but also the reason for presenting to clinic. And and it's great as well that you know more patients are coming to seek help, you know, naturally in this area as well as you know in their IVF circles and that kind of thing too. So we can do the most that we can for the patients.
2: Definitely.
0: you also mentioned in the webinar the importance of evaluating methylation in your patients and treating accordingly, mm. which is very mm. interesting. Mm. And so I wanted to ask, when is it that you generally want to evaluate or test for methylation capacity in your pregnant or fertility patients? And, and what type of testing will you normally do? I know that one of the tests that you mentioned that you often do is a SAMHSA ratio or a mm. adenal. Oh, you might have to pronounce this for me: adenosyl methionine to adenosyl homocysteine ratio. Mm-hmm. So, is there
2: is there anything else that you do? Yeah. Look. So, first and foremost, with methylation, I like to get it done before um, we start the preconception journey. So, to make the most amount of difference to the quality of the oocyte and the sperm, I'd like to have three four months to really make a difference. And if we look at the methylation um, factors that actually regulate that process. It's to B vitamins and your iron, which all correlate to needing a good 120 days life cycle of a red blood cell to make a significant impact. So we want to do any testing earlier. Um, I'm a big advocate of a methylation profile, which is where you get an, a SAM and a SAR reading, as well as the ratio between the two. You get the breakdown products of folate, tetrahydrofolate, folinic acid, five, um, L5MTHF. Um, I like to look at B12, both in its active and non-active form, methionine i like to look at the, the genes and the SNPs correlating with methylation a good iron studies a good full blood count um and i always throw in a fifa profile to go with it that looks at d and um, cysteine and zinc and copper and all of that because they influence all of the steps so it, it's this tricky piece where i'm such a clinician and that's my heart but then i'm a scientist so then i want to know and i want black and white evidence for everything that i do and the scientist in me hates it because firstly, the clinician is always ahead of the scientist because we we just know why things work. We don't have the evidence for it, but we just know. Um, And equally, I know that everything just keeps evolving. So science hasn't caught up with the testing that I need. So I do the best that I can, but we talk about this in five years and there'll be something else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. Um, Hi, lad. Julianne here. Nice to speak with you today. You too. I think the methylation that you spoke about in the webinar... Well, it's so significant, and your webinar actually gets that message across really, really well. And one of the things I think we think about as clinicians is the importance of methylation in preconception care, as you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't really think significantly about, and I must admit, I put my hand up, I'm not, I'm not um, fertility and pregnancy is not my, my go-to as a practitioner. However, <laughs> it was some real key takeaway from your webinar was the significant methylation process that occurs in the mother and in the baby. During that week 17 to 24, and how exhausting yeah. this can be, you know, upon yeah. the mum. I, I must admit, you look back on your own pregnancy and go, ah.
2: Uh, and they always do a morphology scan then, which just exhausts all the mitochondria at the same time. So you're just like, oh, you know, can we get it together? Can we do the morphology later? <laughs>
1: We need to have you speaking to all the right people, I think. <laughs> but in this, it would be really handy if you could just recap on this um, this period of time and explain how it might impact on your treatment for these patients and for
2: these women. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Look, I think hopefully most of us are comfortable with the idea of methylation and how it's obviously making sure that every cell behaves appropriately, does its job effectively, and I kind of liken it to the speed with which everything works, you know, is it efficient or inefficient, etc. cetera. When the, when the mom is pregnant, she goes through various peaks and troughs of methylation demand, but there's a significant demand between week 17 and 24. Mm. In the baby, that's when they're having all the myelin sheath development, which is, you know, the outer coating of all the nerves. So literally every single nerve fiber in the body is taking a huge demand of all of those methylation nutrients, all that methylation donor, um, examples, like all of that sort of stuff, everything is being used so that this little nervous system can be as mature as it possibly can. And that protects the child for all of the neurological development for the rest of its life. You know, it's cognitive function. It's, you know, whether or not it goes anywhere near any of the spectrum stuff and everything that goes from there. And, you know, if it takes, and there's not enough, then it affects genetic imprinting. It affects genetic progression of the baby, all that sort of stuff and switches genes on. But equally in the mother, there's so much methylation demand for her because her body needs so much extra mitochondria and so much extra energy to be able to do all of that for that child and to be able to enable all of that um, development to occur. And everyone kind of looks at it and goes, okay, you get through first trimester, you're through all the nausea, you're through all the exhaustion, now go and glow. And every woman goes, okay, well, I kind of have woken up. I've got about two weeks here. I'm not glowing. What's going on? And I joked about In the webinar with you guys, you know, like all my patients um, go, I want to leave my partner. And I'm like, that's the one thing you're not allowed to do before week 24, because you're just exhausted. So they're either sitting in front of me, just screaming about their partner going, oh my God, I hate them. Or they're crying and they're a blubbering mess, or they've got the sniffles and the flu because they're just shattered. And it's basically just that the body's like in overload. It's not clearing histamines. It's not clearing any detoxification. It's got a up. They're puffy. Their liver's not happy. And they're just exhausted. And they've just drained of all of their cofactors. So it's the one where as clinicians always make sure that you see them around weeks 17, 18, always make sure that you warn them and you normalise it all and give them extra support.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic piece of information. Seriously, yeah. it's so yeah. empowering as a practitioner. Yeah.
2: And therefore, yeah. empowering for the patient, right? Totally. And I've had so many women over the years where, you know, I've seen them maybe not for their first pregnancy, but for their second and subsequent and their first, they were diagnosed with depression, put on antidepressants because they were just, you know, basically agoraphobic and couldn't stop crying. And then you fix all of that methylation work and then they're okay and they're enjoying it and they can cope. Mm. Um, Pregnancy is hard work. You know, yeah. it's beautiful and it's rewarding, but it's really hard work. Mm.
1: If you support methylation, I'm going to ask you in a second about what your key nutrients are when you want to support mm. those women and support their methylation during that time. But just to second that and to follow on from that, do you find that if you can support women in their methylation during those weeks there, mm. does that have any change of their health and vitality throughout the rest of their pregnancy?
2: Absolutely. You know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, if methylation's right, they're less anemic later on. So we know that all women go through the hemodilution. They lose a lot of iron sort of middle of second trimester into third. And we know that pretty much all women get anemic unless you manage it if their methylation isn't supported in that earlier stage of the second trimester, they're guaranteed to be more severely anemic. And I've seen it where I've mapped it with women with different pregnancies. You know, like when, when you get to work with women for a long period of time and you do work through multiple pregnancies, it's really rewarding in many ways. But you learn so much more about how it all behaves. And so then they lose less blood when they deliver. So they recover more when they've delivered their baby. So they have less risk of postnatal. And it just, it's the ripple effect. And, you know, I always hear... Um, william walsh's words where he's sort of taken on from Carl pfeiffer and abram hoffer the whole methylation language and understanding which is the methylation of the parent at the time of conception dictates the methylation patterning of the baby for the rest of their life so if you keep moderating her methylation through the pregnancy you guarantee healthy methylation for the child for the rest of their life who doesn't want to do that huge yeah it's kind of minor, you know, like it, it, it's like, well, you know, oh, no, I'd like a child with a disability and, you know, emotional processing issues. And,
1: no. <laughs> We've probably got a lot of listeners going, can I recap on that pregnancy again? Can we can we go back and redo that now? Um, but it's that, that's how empowering this bit of information is really. So on that then, what are your go-to nutrients that you prescribe for these women to support their methylation?
2: Um, all of your B12 and your folate and your choline and your iron. They're your four main ones. Um, And then any of the compounds that assist in the conversion and the different substances with it. So things like zinc and magnesium and all that are equally important, but you need your building blocks to achieve um, the primary variables.
0: Something that I liked when we're talking about methylation and I think is, is sometimes overlooked when trying to address these issues is you also talk about, Leah, in the webinar, holistic support of methylation using herbal medicine and I love this Optimal Rx, We produced a, a chart on this a couple of years ago that mm. covers it in quite a bit of detail, and I know there's there's a lot of options and a lot of different ways to use herbal medicine in this regard, but do you have any favourite considerations, generally speaking, in this area when you're talking about
2: herbs? Look, I, th- I think, you know, and I've seen your methylation chart, and I think it's beautiful, and I think it's you know, it's like we were doing the webinar and and there's talking about different concepts and has science caught up and whatever, but fundamentally we're herbalists and herbs work in ways that don't necessarily have a paper that might prove its efficacy, but they still work. And we understand that they work in a holistic framework and in an integrative framework. Um, You know, I think you have to look at the person that's sitting in front of you and try and establish is methylation working because they have Um, you know a backlog of homocysteine is methylation not working because there's too much inflammation is it not working because they've got you know poor clearance of hormones like estrogen try and establish what it is that's working and then you can identify which herbs can be used to assist it because it's as specific as it as nutrients are you know you can't just sit there and go I'm going to go give everyone this methyl formula of herbs or this methyl formula of nutrients because no one's no one's like that it's very individualized and I think that's the beauty of our extemporaneous prescribing option with our liquids because we can then tailor the formula for the person and of course there's some heroes and there's some herbs that I love more than others um, but let's be really honest you know every person where their methylation isn't working gets adaptogens mm-hmm. you know and is it because if you can ease a lot of their stress and you can ease a lot of their neurological output that that's when methylation starts to work again absolutely
0: I totally agree <laughs>
1: yeah and that's where herbs are brilliant, aren't they? Because they are so yeah. individualised. You can just sit across them They are, and
2: work they are, yeah. yeah. And it's all very well, you know, like in the webinar, we talk about green tea and how it makes glutathione work better so we know then it works on, you know, assisting the liver and as an antioxidant and whatever. But we still just love, glut- um, you know, green tea for all sorts of different reasons, not just because science has caught up with some evidence around it.
1: That's right, that's right. The webinar goes into so many great topics, even though it's like when we look at it with what the actual title of the webinar is, we think, oh, that's quite a little, neat nice, little package, but there are yeah, sure. so <laughs> many things that impact this. Um, something that was quite daunting and interesting all at the one time was the trigenerational impact on fertility and the health mm-hmm. of our babes. Um, I say daunting because, again, if we look backwards, that might daunt us, but if we look mm. forward, it's actually powerful, a bit like yeah. the mitochondrial and the methylation talk we had before. It's a clear driver for us as practitioners to work within mitochondrial health, I think. Mm. Are you able to now, I know it's a detailed topic, but are you able to just briefly explain what tri- trigenerational impact is, how it works, and what we can do as practitioners to educate and support the health of future generations, hopefully?
2: No, know definitely. Look, the, the concept of trigenerational impact really started with all the genetic analysis um, of the women that went through the Dutch famine after the Second World War. And they followed these women, their daughters and their granddaughters, and they saw significant impact to fertility. I mean, we've been doing trigenerational impact to rat and mice studies for eons in science because, you know, they have such a shorter gestation and such a shorter life. You can see how it quickly translates. But what it tells us is that everything that every generation has experienced and every generation in front of us will experience is impacted by who we are at this moment. You know, so science is catching up. I don't know if you've heard, I did some, I'm really fascinated by the concept of microchimerism and the cells that carry over with each generation and how you carry the cells of your kids and then their kids and blah, 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 blah. Mm. We've got science to understand how it works and how it happens. It will evolve over time. But as clinicians, it tells us that whatever we do with our patients right now will change future generations. And that's not me being all overly dramatic and trying to, you know, sell something to someone. It's, it's legitimate. And you can see how, you know, like I come from a family where four grandparents, Holocaust survivors, you know, severe famine, starvation. I've seen the changes with my parents, seen the changes with my, myself, my kids, et cetera. And I've seen the changes with how, you know, I looked at my own health preconceptually and I made distinct changes, herbally, nutritionally, naturopathically, and I can see how it didn't switch on genes for my kids and how it didn't switch on disease processes and how I can see that the kids that they're gonna have, we've broken the line of genetic damage. That's pretty powerful stuff. I mean, it's, it's empowering as a clinician, it's empowering as a human being, and it's empowering to know that with this information, we can change the health of future generations. And it's not just a marketing ploy, it's actually legitimate. So if you have a family history of a particular disorder, Whatever you do before you have kids will determine if you're going to have that gene on or off and if you're going to carry that on or stop it. So I think, you know, the preconception idea is very accepted in mainstream medicine and in the fertility community. They don't have any tools with which to do anything. So they refer to us. You know, it's all very well for them to go, oh, yeah, DHA improves egg quality and melatonin does. But they go and prescribe it, throw the person into an IVF cycle and go, oh, it didn't work. Um, well, no, the egg was maturing for three to four months before then. Do you think they could maybe bring it in? Oh, well, no one will fund that. So then we go, well, refer them to us, we'll fix them, and then we'll give them back to you, and they may not even need to see you. So it, it's just this whole idea of this is preventative medicine, which is what we do, um, and we do it well, so let us. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it, it's such a mindset, a conceptual differentiation between how medicine evolves in different professions. This is who we are. We're preventative health clinicians. And it's totally within our
0: paradigm. Like, it's
2: just. Totally. Yeah.
0: It's fantastic. And we're good at it.
2: We're, we're good so at good. it. So let's do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I'm very, you know, that, that word empowering, it is so empowering. Like, just, mm. you know, you can be so optimistic thinking forward of, you know, you're not just improving your own health, you're just improving entirely down the line and giving. Mm everyone that comes from you, the best opportunity to, to thrive. It's crazy. I love, I love how you explain that. That's fantastic. And mm-hmm. one of the areas that, you know, of health that is so important, particularly regarding fertility is mitochondrial health. Mm-hmm. And you covered this so brilliantly in the webinar. Mm-hmm. And interestingly for us, particularly as herbalists, you talk about some great research um, regarding astragalocytes so constituents mm. from astragalus and mm. their beneficial impact on mitochondrial health as seen in the research and I was very interested to sort of ask how long would you generally prescribe a tonic herb like astragalus before expecting to see that kind of a desired outcome on the mitochondria
2: at least four months
0: at least four months uh, yeah
2: you know as a, as a herbalist You know, I've looked at all of the various traditions and there's a reason why they prescribe astragalus as often as they do. You know, there's so much knowledge in those thousands of years of traditional Chinese medicine history that we need to understand there's a reason that herb has been chosen and let's lean into it. And if we do believe in all of its anti-aging properties and all of its regenerative properties, the body heals, but it takes a bit of time. And to really improve the mitochondria of an egg, I want four months. And yeah. if I'm going to be given four months, no one in Chinese medicine would give astragalus for less than that. But yet as Western herbalists, we think we should have an immediate response. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. Mm. I think sometimes uh, we we underestimate our tools and we overestimate that we have to catch up to medicine, which is wrong.
0: Yeah. And that's sort of the same concept that you're talking about before, like chucking some DHA, a DHA to yeah. a patient and just going, oh, it didn't work and moving on. Yeah. But yeah. interestingly, that that sort of traditional Chinese medicine Prescribing of astragalus. I know Mm -hmm. in uh, naturopathic school, generally speaking, we're often taught that astragalus is not usually recommended acutely for use. It's it's more more so used as a tonic. But you mentioned in your in the webinar that sometimes you do use it acutely, depending on the situation. And I I think that's great. And it's a selective process. So can you just explain when a situation would call for the acute use and when you might avoid that particular use of astragalus?
2: I think the acute has to be an extreme acute with a lot of heat, a lot of temperature, a lot of heat, a lot of uh, discharge discoloration where the body doesn't want to be slowed down and it wants to use the fever to burn out whatever the bug is. In that situation, I find that astragalus can kind of progress or delay the infection a little bit. But if it's just, you know, a kid with the odd flu or whatever or a woman where she has little things going on, that's fine. I mean, it's still going to have its tonification properties and it's still going to work on energising the body in all those different ways with the mitochondria. Um, It it really comes down to heat for me. That's sort of how I differentiate it. And that's a Chinese medicine interpretation, I know.
0: But looking at the energetics of, uh, you know, the different types of plants that we're using can be really beneficial for prescribing. Definitely.
2: And that's the same with the ginsengs. I mean, we talked a bit about the ginsengs with Um, you know, improvements as an antioxidant and as an anti-aging, but I can't touch Panax. I mean, I'm a type A with a really fast brain. Panax and me don't go. (laughs) It's like, you know, and you've got to think about that and think about the traditional uses of the herbs a lot more and that applicability really influences your decision. And that's great too, because, I mean, we've
0: got, when we're talking about the ginsengs, there's almost a ginseng for every type of person. You've got, you know, hot, hotter, uh, ginseng is like a Korean ginseng. Then you've got mm. American ginseng and Tianchi ginseng. There's so many mm. to choose from. So yeah, that's are. where They're we come in with our prescribing and and hopefully match the plant to the person.
1: I just want to jump back um, Leia to the topic of mitochondrial health and herbal medicines. Mm-hmm. And I know in the research because we've looked at, at mitochondrial health under a couple of I guess disease headings like autoimmune disease, etc. And now we're revisiting it with fertility. So the, the research and granted, it's obviously preclinical, we're looking at mechanistic studies and what have you, but we see a few different herbs being um, investigated by the research, but on different cell types. So it might be something like a neuronal cell or what have you. Yep. Do you think it's fair or can we as clinicians, because this is our role, even here at Optimal, is to, to look at that research and to make it clinically applicable and to yep. see how we can do that? Do you think that we can extrapolate some of that data, even though we're looking at different cell types, the mitochondria within different cell types, and possibly explore that as herbal medicine options for
2: the mitochondria within our sites? So, do you want to ask the scientist or the clinician?
1: <laughs> I want to ask both, actually. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so the researcher goes, "No, watch this space, wait for science to catch mm. up," because they're different cell types. The clinician goes, "The proof's in the pudding." So. I mean, you know this as clinicians as well, like as a clinician, you have an inkling and you have an energetic connection to something and you go, that will work and I just am going to trust it. Or you get this brainwave and you go, oh my God, I'm just going to give this a go. And then all of a sudden you get this amazing outcome. And then you eventually find the paper that correlates with it. And that happens to me all the time, you know, science then all of a sudden releases something and I go, oh, wow, good. I was on the right the right pathway. Um, I do see changes, but then I go back to, as a herbalist, I go, okay, well, is Bacopa working to improve the health of the mitochondria because it's an adaptogen? Because it's actually helping to restore the person and to soothe them and to heal them and slow them down and not lose so much mitochondrial energy in the brain? Or is it working because it's affecting both the brain mitochondria as well as the oocyte mitochondria? I don't know yet. I don't know. I'm getting the outcome, so I'm going to use it. so that's the clinician but the researcher goes i don't know i don't know and i guess that's the advantage of being a clinician because you can experiment with it and we all do and you know someone will hear this talk and it won't work for them but they'll hear a different talk and it will work for them or we've all got theories and we're all just trying to pave the way and, and get the best clinical outcome but but i do see the benefit i guess that's where it concludes for me um but i'm selective and i match it to the person
1: i think that's great also the understanding the herb yeah. You know, what is the benefit of that herb anyway? And often yeah. that's what can be extrapolated to the individual
2: person as well, if
1: we're trying yeah. to be specific around yeah. supporting mitochondrial health.
2: Bilberry, yeah. for example, yeah.
1: like understanding yeah. that, yeah. you know. Um, and if we understand that as a huge antioxidant plant, then we might also be able to extrapolate that in oocyte health, perhaps if we've done our research and work around it too.
2: Yeah. But then I think it's, you know, my brain goes, well, is the oocyte health compromised because there has been an anterior pituitary or a brain? Um, component where the antioxidant from bilberry will help have they had a history of infection that may have damaged the anterior pituitary then do you know what i mean and you, yeah. you, you map it in whichever way that you can I mean, of course, I have this this love of bilberry. It's one of my favourites. I don't know why it is, but it's just one of those herbs that, you know, you just love. Um, and you see if it's applicable. If it's not, it's not. But I think it's what I wanted to get across with the talk was very much around let's get outside of chase tree and wild yam and false unicorn root and stop thinking of just the reproductive system and start thinking a bit more broadly and really go back to the basics of the oocyte has more mitochondria than any other cell in the body. We don't fully understand how that mitochondria works in differentiation to other cells, but if we can get a clinical outcome, let's go with it. Absolutely. Very well said.
0: And I just want to almost switch gears for a second here because I want to talk a little bit about male fertility support Mm -hmm. and you make the point in your webinar, which I just think is so clear and and, and great the way that you say this, that the cleaner the sperm is, the less pressure you're putting on that oocyte. So mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to explain naturopathic treatment in these kind of situations and the need for it, for that mm-hmm. you know, male factor. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, what are some of your favourite herbal medicine classes or standout herbs that you, that you look at for men in, uh, during preconception?
2: So the pros and cons of my brain are that I want to know more details. So yeah, I know. It no. motility, it's all about the oncology, case taking. <laughs> is it infection? Is it semen? Is it like, what am I trying to achieve here? Um, look, the male tonics are beautiful. Yeah. I'm so pleased that Damiana's back sort of thing. Um, like, oh you know, God, that was exhausting, wasn't it? Um, you know, it, it's the difference between what am I trying to achieve here and why has it not been working? Um some of the stayers. okay, so if we're thinking, let's say DNA fragmentation, cause then it makes the egg easier. I'll bring it to the eggs for simplification. So then I'll be looking at my main antioxidant types of herbs. I do think ginkgo works beautifully. I do think curcuma works beautifully. Um, Grapeseed extract, not weed, especially if there's like a history of infection or those really rich antioxidant types of herbs. Because the advantage of men is that, you know, 72 to 76 days, they've completely changed all of their sperm. So you basically just have this beautiful antioxidant, circulatory stimulant type of approach, and the sperm always look better. Um, If I need to get very specific, then I might use things like sarsaparilla or oats or um, damiana or things like that. Yeah, it just depends on the person. Sorry, tribulus was the one my brain was thinking. Sorry.
1: Mm. It always comes back to the patient, hey? It's a, always. A we've got. always. Yeah. Um, key antioxidants are also obviously important, what you were talking about there in male health. So let's cycle mm-hmm. back to glutathione a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned in your webinar about, about its importance and, and how phenomenal it can be if we get the right preparation and the right dose. You also mentioned that it, its effects can almost double, so to speak, mm-hmm. if we combine that with green tea. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So, do you know of any other nice nutrient herb kind of synergies or synergism that we can put into play and in practice?
2: I think all nutrients. I think you've just got to work out which one. All nutrients. All nutrients and herbs. It just depends on which one you're trying to focus on. Um, I use so much Codonopsis from a blood building perspective, from a microbiome restorative perspective. So if you're, let's say, wanting to improve the microbiome and all the probiotic species, I use heaps of powdered liquid form, depending on the person. If I'm wanting to improve iron utilisation and blood building, I'll use codinopsis. I might use rosehip for the vitamin C concentration or lithania, Like different applications. Um, what are some of the other nutrients that we spoke about that might want to be mentioned?
1: Vitamin, as
2: well. sorry? Resveratrol, Resveratrol. yeah, resveratrol. Resveratrol is such an uh, underutilised nutrient and underutilised herbal components that go with it as well. I mean, Japanese knotweed, I think everyone boxes um, in the infective community too much. In that sort of world, they kind of go, knotweed, any of the weird and wonderful bugs, lime, Borrelia, whatever, they kind of go, okay, I'll just keep it for that. But it's actually such a, it's a clever herb and it's a very interesting herb because of its um, breadth of application but it does have lovely antioxidant potential from the resveratrol content.
1: And it does have lots of, as we're saying, you know, when we can talk about a nutrient and then we can talk about a herb, but we can actually look at a constituent in the herb and then how mm. that's utilised probably yep. more effectively with the other constituents There's this whole yep. idea of synergy. And we're so luckily lucky to be herbalists to be yep. able to get to play with this clinically. Um, and thank you for sharing that around Japanese knotweed too, because it is one of those, herbs that has actually been categorized and i know we did a lot of work on that here at optimal when we brought it out several years ago but it was around the infective space
2: Mm. so it's sitting on
1: a lot of people's shelves that possibly don't know how to utilize that as well as they possibly can so i think thinking about its use with along with with resveratrol and the other reason i use it a lot clinically admittedly i see a lot of um Chronic illnesses and chronic disorders is around its support of endothelial cells. So that's something mm. if we can think about would affect so many um, sections of disease
2: and disorders as well. Yeah, mm, definitely.
0: And another um, important intervention that you've discussed Leah, not only in the webinar, but also you mentioned a little bit earlier, is melatonin. So I think with melatonin, I'd actually like to ask a few questions around this. So so firstly, just in general why do we need good levels of melatonin for fertility if you can just give us a little background on that and then i've got a few more up my sleeve
2: yeah no for sure Um, the melatonin research is quite broad at the moment Um, it initially started in the context of um you know having a reduction in oxidative stress burden to the aging cells and you know they did this really interesting paper it's a good 10 years ago now um, and that sort of started the ball rolling Um, then they started to realise that melatonin protected the oocytes if they were exposed to toxins. Um, And then they realised that the mitochondria, and particularly the mitochondria within the oocytes, have one of the highest concentrations of melatonin, which really surprised researchers and clinicians alike, because it's not really something that you usually associate with. I mean, when we think of melatonin, we know that, um, you know, it's amazing in the context of sleep and sleep-wake cycle. And then the the curious part of my brain I often sort of looks at it and goes, well, if I have enough melatonin as an antioxidant, is it because I get enough sleep? And is that how sleep actually works and makes benefit and does all of that as well? So it's, it's very much around antioxidant potential and ensuring that there's enough ATP so that I can regenerate the mitochondria itself.
0: Totally. And I think uh, generally speaking, fertility patients are often aware of, of the need for melatonin. A lot of different uh, types of clinicians will recommend that nowadays i think it's it's one of those things that's in, yeah in yeah quite common in the ibf community as well but not necessarily i don't think all of these patients would be aware that certain herbal medicines can also improve levels of melatonin and mm. um i have quite a few favorites that i often use do you have what any <laughs> well i re- I really like hops and chamomile, and um i actually use lemon balm a bit as well for, yeah. for that do you, yeah. do you have any favourites? I don't want to take any from you.
2: <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. Look, I mean, there's great research with chastry, um, with improving melatonin, especially if you take it at night. Um, and I've seen that clinically. And I often wonder if that's also because the chastry helps regulate the progesterone, which initiates that sleep in the luteal phase, which then assists in the melatonin production, you know, and it just goes round and round. And it's that beautiful holism of herbal medicine. Um, I think any of your sedatives, and I'm quite selective with the sedatives, you know, is it from brain exhaustion is it from overthinking is it from you know nerve ion tonification need or is it from just they need to be knocked out you know mm. a, a good dose of coridullis and jamaican dogwood never hurt anyone and sometimes that's the level that they need just to break that cycle and to really sedate them but maybe they're more a skullcap person and that's just about gently you know skullcap and passiflora and getting them to the point where their body remembers to sleep um just different with different people but most of my sleep formulas for fertility people will always have chase tree in them with a more of a double dose in the luteal phase.
0: Yep. And I think that's, that's a way to use chase tree that not all yeah. herbalists may be aware of as well. Yeah. And I do, I really, now that you mentioned skullcap, I just love it for those Isn't it? hypersensitive, you know, yeah. hypersensitive patients. Just soothes
2: them. Like I feel like I'm massaging a baby with skullcap. <laughs> it's just that integrating the nervous system sort of feel, you know? Exactly. That's exactly right. That integrating yeah. the
0: nervous system. It's beautiful. Yeah. um (laughs) and then is there when in your patients when we're talking about herbal medicine for for melatonin and and that kind of thing when is it that you will refer for a prescription of a physical dose of melatonin because in australia we've got to refer to Mm. the gp for that
2: yeah so um there's two parts to it so one is i'll refer if there's an age limit and they're kind of wanting to speed the process up Mm-hmm. um and they want to sort of get that melatonin in and just them normalizing their sleep improves their fertility outcome and maybe they just need it faster um but equally melatonin as a prescription um it can make a mess of people's hormones you know the herbs don't but the melatonin supplement does so for some people where you're w- wanting to work and improve the melatonin pathway the herbs are actually the better choice so mm-hmm. just working out which person but i've had a few women where they go on melatonin and then their cycles get really short and they don't really have a proper bleed. And it basically just disrupts their progesterone in a way that makes them almost infertile.
0: That's really interesting. Mm. and So it's just herbal...
2: something to think about that individualized part again, you know?
0: Yeah. And and the other beauty with herbal medicines is that generally speaking, they are modulating. So exactly. You know, they're, they're very clever in how they work. Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that you talk about in the webinar when you're discussing environmental factors and endocrine disrupting chemicals, you make this really great point that toxins from prior IVF cycles should actually be considered and chelated. And mm. I mean that makes total sense. As soon as you said it, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Yeah. Um, because normally when we're chelating or detoxing, we we want to do this for a good you know three months at least before conception. Um, and, and you note in the webinar that this would apply to detoxing between IVF cycles. And I think, you know, this probably doesn't come to mind for every patient, um, you know, when, when, they're, when, they're, when they have a failed IVF cycle, often they might just want to get straight back on the horse and, and be anxious to try again. So with your patients, um, what herbal medicines or general protocols would you employ after a failed IVF cycle? And and what are your general recommendations for waiting in between? It's
2: very individual (laughs) for a change. That's the phrase of the podcast. Um, It's individual because some women, they've got an age limitation and they've got the emotional anxiety that goes with that. Um, So assuming that I have free reign, I'd like three to four months to get some things out. Sometimes I can get it out within six weeks. It depends on the type of drugs that are used. I mean, women that go through IVF cycles and they're given growth hormone, for example, that can take six to 12 months to get out of the body. Mm. And that's a real doozy. And it just makes such a mess. So it really depends on their history and it depends on where they're at. But if they're 43 and they're running out of time and they're in a total panic, I may or may not be able to do what I want to achieve. So it depends, depends. Good things to consider though. Mm. And herbs wise though, I'm sorry, I didn't answer that part. Did I? Um, Say I have complete free reign um, with respect to the herbal context, I like to get those the synthetic estrogens and the synthetic um, metabolites of all of the drugs out. So I really want to get that beta glucuronidation working. So it might be as simple as um, bupleurum and St. Mary's thistle or it might be a little bit more in-depth with some schizandra or something like that. just depends on the person and how I'm trying to, to remedy it. But some really good liver herbs and curcuma is always in there for me.
1: Yeah, if only we had all the time in the world with all of our people, all the
2: Absolutely. time. Absolutely. You know, just let me treat you how I want to. Don't have I a lot.
1: The more we talk about things in here, I'm like, can I just go back in time? I've got a beautiful, healthy baby, but some of this, you know, I sort of think, can I just go back? Let's redo. <laughs> how lucky are all the practitioners listening today, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm going to ask a quick question around diet, though, and if you have any dietary recommendations or pitfalls for those women that are coming to see us. For fertility problems, or just just to optimize fertility,
2: I think probably one of the biggest things at the moment is because fasting is so popular, mm-hmm. that it's about making sure that they get enough calories. So there's so many women that I see that are under eating, um, and they're aging their bodies and shutting down processes because they're not actually eating enough food. Um, so it's gone from don't eat rubbish and eat this good food to okay, well you know what to eat, but now you're just not eating. Um, And the more the fasting research and the anti-aging research is evolving, the more we're realizing that women's fasting window needs to be shorter and they can't do long-term fasting like men can. So women, their maximum really is a 16-8 model. They can't do 18-6. Men can, women really shouldn't Um, because they just stuff up their hormones too much and it takes them four to six months to get back. Um, And then if they want to fast, 12 12 is fine, but they have to eat for 12 hours of the day. Um, I think most people have, you know, that they're aware that too much caffeine's a problem and alcohol's not good and organic is better. Like they're aware of the basics. They actually just need to eat food now. The irony, you know.
1: <laughs> That's right. But the fasting windows are um, I did really enjoy that in your webinar about the difference between men and women and, and what that's about because it's the fasting rules and the different rules out there for fasting and how they're being employed by different practitioners is is vast, very varied. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, again, in this population, it's where you have to look at something else. Mm. Yeah. Another huge topic, then maybe in the near future we can get you back on board for this one as well, Leah, <laughs> is the microbiome and microbiome health. Uh, we gave a lecture on this a couple of months ago around uh, herbal medicines that modulate the microbiota and the microbiome, I guess, as an as a extension of that. Do you have any herbs or foods that you find work really nicely in this I mean you mentioned cottonopsis before in the microbiome so we might be able to tick that one. Are there any other herbs that you like to utilize to support the health of the microbiota in
2: I love slippery elm. You know I love slippery elm. I love marshmallow I love licorice I love oats if they're tolerated. Um I find turmeric helps the microbiome a lot. It's a clinical thing but I just find I think it's that I, I go back to traditional herbal practices and they've always used them as staple foods, which means they knew something we didn't. Yeah. So we have to lean into all of those. So anything that's a culinary herb or that's regularly used is going to have a benefit. Mm. Um, and I do think that, you know, it's educating your patients around bitter greens and okra and, you know, like all those basic things that are prebiotic foods, but it's also reminding them about the, the non-grain foods, you know, the buckwheats and the amaranths and all that sort of stuff. But, Cotinopsis is such an interesting underutilized herb. And again, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, I think, knows what it's doing. Um, And I think a lot of those traditional Chinese medicine tonics have a role in the microbiome. So even if it's a Romania or a licorice, they're pretty much in all formulas. And peony, I mean, I think we don't even understand it to its extent. You know, I think it does have an application where it does play a role here. And fundamentally, herbs are food. Which means that they're going to affect the microbiome, whether or not we fully understand their their use.
1: I agree, and the the TCM herbs do come up a lot when we're doing research around mm. um, microbiome health. Astragalus is another one. It's got yeah. You know, and again, once you understand the constituents of the plants, you're generally going to understand how that might have an impact on the microbiota, and individual yep. species. So yep. that's fantastic, and I think there's always that. I guess imbalanced views sometimes around infection versus balance um, mm. and how to you utilize those herbs. So I think if we're looking at a space when we're trying to conceive, mm. from my experience, which is much more limited in that, that area compared to yours, obviously, I don't think I'd want to be killing a lot of stuff off during that um, preconception period. I think I would want to be supporting the, the beneficial species and that might be via food but also yeah via those tonic herbal medicines that you were talking yep. about is yep, something definitely. again a whole uh, lecture on that would be amazing to further you know specify it into the preconception care but let's try and wrap this up i could talk to you forever i realize we're on a bit of time limit here but let's try and wrap this up and do you have, and I know that the individual patient is our theme of this, this podcast, but mm-hmm. do you have any hero herbs that you tend to, to go to for supporting the mitochondria of oocytes? Tumic, number one.
2: Perfect. Yeah, and it's very dose-dependent and it's very, very widely applicable. And for me, it's always about blood movement. Um, if they're not trying to conceive, then it's cinnamon as well because it's so warming to the reproductive system. But otherwise it's turmeric because I can give that through a cycle, I can give that when they're pregnant, I can use it as a food, I can use it as a, a an extract, however I want to do it, but turmeric definitely it. Um I don't think there's any woman infertility that I don't give it to. Oh.
1: Really?
2: Yeah. Just such a powerful antioxidant. Mm. And I just see that it um it euthifies and tonifies and moves the blood in a way that I don't I've never seen any other herb do. Mm.
1: Ticks all the boxes that we're looking for, right?
2: Pretty much yeah yeah <laughs> and it makes all my nutrients work better do you know yeah. what i mean yeah. yeah so everything works better when it's there
1: yeah and again in the microbiome <laughs> modulation how it's yeah exactly and activity yeah. in there, another yeah. tick <laughs> tick <laughs> leah we want to thank you so very much for your time today uh and for your expertise in this phenomenal area wish you luck with your phd research because i can't thank wait you. to see that space and thank, thank you. you once again for Just working towards education of our profession and moving our profession forward with your phenomenal texts that we get to look and read and refer to on an ongoing basis here in the Optimal Office, so we appreciate it.
2: Thank you for your time. Thank Thank you, you very much, thank you.